Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. Uh, I'm your host, Katie Morton. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and I'm here to answer your questions about all things. It's funny, this every week I feel like we have kind of like a trend in the topics, and today's is a lot about like diagnosing and therapy sessions, things that we do in session. It's very, I, your questions are always wonderful. So thank you for sending them in. And if you are new and you are wondering where I gather such amazing questions, I gather them over on my podcast channel. So if you're already watching this on YouTube, you can go into the community tab on Sunday mornings or anytime after that. I've uh, filmed these on Monday evenings. So you have a little over 24 hours, probably more like, you know, 30 hours to get your question in. And then I pick uh, 10 questions usually today. I think we only have seven, but that's because there, there are a lot of follow-up questions. But I usually pick around 10 questions. The first eight are the ones with the most thumbs up. So if there's a question that's very similar to yours, give it a thumbs up and you can add in additional you know, comment question. And then the last two questions are just randomly selected so that everybody has an opportunity to get their questions answered. But without further ado, let's get into that first question. Oh, and I almost, almost forgot to tell you guys, and I didn't even bring my book out with me, but my book Traumatized is available for pre-order now. It comes out September 7th. Get yours today. Okay, let's jump into it. This first question says, hey, Katie, is fidgeting bad to do in a therapy session? I tend to fidget a lot with my hands, lean forward and sit at the end of the seat in session. My therapist made me sit back and spread my hands and stop moving them. That's really interesting. So I ended up bouncing my legs instead. She told me to try and stop that too, but I couldn't fully stop. And it just really made me uncomfortable. Like I was in an awkward body position. Is there something wrong with what I was doing and why wasn't I fully able to stop? Okay. Now someone has a question on top of this, but I want to dig into this because I don't like your therapist <laughs> and their approach. They might be a lovely person. Your therapist might be wonderful, but their approach to this is not good. Now I will draw attention in the comments. People mention this and a lot of you have other therapists who think just like me. Now I will in session draw attention to this so that my patient's aware and try to figure out what's going on to cause it because fidgeting, sitting on the edge of the seat, bouncing our legs in my, obviously I, I don't see you in my office and it's like, I'd need more time to assess, but my first, like it's kind of a red flag for anxiety. So my first hypothesis is one of the anxiety disorders. And I'm just kind of curious about that. Right. And so I would draw your attention to it, not in a judgmental way, but more in a, do you know, notice you're doing it kind of way. Like I've even said this to one of my patients. She used to sit on the very edge of my couch and kind of like bounce. Like you said, you bounced your legs. She would bounce her legs. And I would always say to her, I'd be like, do you notice that when we talk about, you know, this particular subject, your legs bounce like faster do you feel more on edge? Is it hard to talk about? You know, I just try to figure out where it's coming from and why it's happening. Not that we need to stop it, but our body language and the way that we move our body is indicative of things going on in our head, right? And how we're actually feeling or what's happening. And 
and as a therapist, a huge part of our job is just noticing body language in session, because sometimes there's things we're not going to say verbally that we'll tell with our body. Does that make sense? And so no fidgeting is not bad to do in session. It's just something that's going to happen. It's very, very common. And it's important that we recognize we're doing it now. I don't understand why your therapist made you sit back and stop moving. Also just as full for full disclosure, for any autistic people out there, a lot of this behavior can be what we call maybe stemming behavior or just self-soothing, right? We're trying to find a way to regulate. And if you guys aren't aware, I think it's, I think it's only called stemming, but maybe there's another word that I'm not aware of, but really it's just repetitive motions of things we can do or movement of our body to kind of help us stay regulated, stay okay, and not feel really uncomfortable maybe, or have a meltdown or dissociate and feel, you know, overwhelmed in any way. And so whatever you can do in session to help yourself feel okay is fine with me. I even had a patient when we talk about trauma in particular, she really wanted to be covered up. So she would put, I had like, there were three blankets that were rolled into, you know, one of those like wicker baskets in my office. And she would put all of them on her, like one over her shoulders, one over her lap. And then one she would like kind of hold up on her chest and kind of cuddle it. Um, and that's fine. But it's not that there's no good or bad ways to be in session. It's more about recognizing it. Like we talked a lot, that patient who wanted to use all of those blankets, we talked a lot about her feeling of needing to be hid and how the blankets could be kind of soothing to her in a little way and help her feel a slightly safer talking about it. And so I was okay with it because one thing at a time, right? If that helps us feel a little bit better in session, then that's okay. If it helps us push further in the conversation, in the therapeutic work, even better, right? And so I don't like that your therapist made you stop. It is good to recognize why we're doing it. And let's move into the comments because someone said, as an add-on question, is fidgeting an unhealthy coping skill? My hands are constantly fidgeting to the point that they might get physically hurt. Very rarely. When I control it, the anxious energy builds up. Do I have to fix it if it doesn't bother me that much? It depends on if the fidgeting, because like the fact that, you know, you might get physically hurt, it seems like it's kind of extreme. And what I mean by that is it's okay if like in session, we're a little fidgety and we find ourselves like I keep uh, fidget toys in my office and I keep a uh, silly putty or what's called thinking putty. I actually have a couple of silly putty eggs that I, um, I actually just left them there when we moved so that someone else can enjoy them. But I always had that stuff in my office because then we have the ability to work something in our hands and it keeps, it keeps our hands moving and that is completely fine. But if it's getting to the point, I know you said it's very rarely, but if it's getting to the point that it's, it's almost like out of control and you could hurt yourself, then I would say that it's no longer a healthy coping skill. And that's where something that can be healthy, like for instance, you could argue that exercise is very healthy, right? It's a healthy coping skill. It gets our, our energy out. It's almost like that full body shake. We can reset our nervous system and get that like all of that uh, fight flight response out of our system and we can feel better. However, we can over exercise, right? We can do it when we're sick or when we don't have the energy and we can push our body too much and be end up getting injured or getting sick, right? And that's when something that was healthy turns into something that is no longer healthy. And I feel like it's possible that we've kind of crossed over in that line. And my knee jerk reaction to this is, do you have any tools to help you better manage your anxiety? And have we considered maybe medication? Because sometimes when we feel like our anxiety or our depression or anything that we're struggling with, if it's just, oh, it's just, over our head. It's just a little too much. The feelings and the symptoms are too intense. 
we sometimes need medication to help us get our head above water. It's like we're drowning in the symptoms and it's going to be really difficult for us to use any of the therapeutic tools or behavioral techniques that our therapist might offer. And so we need to use medication to get our head above water so that we can do those things and can try to feel better and use all those tools. Does that make sense? Um, yeah. And so th that's really, that's where I'm at with it. And then the question, like, do I have to fix it if it doesn't bother me that much? It's more about if it's hindering you in some ways, like let's say we're trying to meet new friends or go on dates and we feel or maybe we're not connecting with people or they point out our fidgeting or we feel like it's, it's impeding our ability to connect and make good relationships or maybe it's making work difficult or I don't know maybe sleep is even hard to come by because we're fidgeting I don't know but I'm just saying that we just have to pay attention to if it's teetering into unhealthy from healthy and that's something that you know we can talk out with our therapist we can try to assess but it's just something that when it comes to even our healthy coping skills, we should just be a little bit aware of if they're getting out of hand, if we're doing like it all the time. Like my friend Cheryl, who I love, we were talking about this over on her channel. I don't know if this video, I don't think the videos have gone live yet. We were talking about her diamond painting that she does. If you don't know what diamond painting is, you can look it up. It's like putting a little uh, rhinestone onto kind of the tip of a pen, like the wax, you have wax on there. So it like sticks to it. And then it sticks onto this design that you're making. And it, it's just really soothing. It's kind of, you know, like paint by numbers, but with rhinestones. Anyway, she does that a lot. And I, she was asking me if I thought it was a bad thing. And I was like, absolutely not. It's, it's a great thing, but you're doing it for like six hours every day. And I think that's a little bit much. And so they're just keeping an eye on those things so that we don't turn a healthy coping skill into an unhealthy one. Okay. Let's move on to question number two. Now, question number two says, has it ever felt strange going to therapy when you yourself are a therapist? Does it ever seem kind of trippy to with their layers of perspective on top of yours? Hmm, good question. Or is being a therapist something you basically shed before your own sessions? Interesting. Do you think your therapist ever feels intimidated by the fact that you're trained in the same field? Okay, good question. And then there's a comment on this says also, but I'll get into that separately because I feel like it's kind of a separate question on top of it. So it hasn't ever, it doesn't feel strange to me as a therapist to go into therapy. I do always let them know that I'm a therapist. I mean, that comes out on it, probably on the paperwork if I'm thinking about it. It's like they ask, you know, what you do sometimes and I'm like licensed therapist. Um, so they might feel a little bit weird about it. I'd actually asked my old therapist back in LA, Jana, about that. Like if it bothered her that I was up there, not bothered, but if it was like, uh, disruptive in any way. And she was like, no, I enjoy the challenge. And also you get things more quickly. And so I think there is kind of this, it, it's a little bit helpful because I, I understand the lingo. She doesn't have to explain it to me like a layman. She knows that I'm in the field so she can, she doesn't have to explain what cognitive behavioral therapy is, you know, or, or even if I got it, let's say I got a diagnosis of a uh, generalized anxiety disorder. She knows that I know what that is and we can talk about it. And so there's some things that like, it makes it easier. There's like, it's, um, we're speaking the same language so that can make it more simple. But I do think that the tricky thing for me as a therapist going into therapy is that defense mechanisms are like not more difficult to fight, but they're, they're there almost, I don't know if it's more quickly, but for me, it feels like they might be there more quickly because I, I like know what she's doing sometimes. And I'm like, Ugh, I know what you're doing. And if I'm not ready to like m acknowledge that or make that change, I'm like, 
I see what you're doing and I'm not interested, you know, and I can push back a little bit more so I can be kind of a pain in the ass, I would assume. She's never told me I'm a pain in the ass, but I'm just, you know, I'm hypothesizing with you. And I think that, you know, some of that, it could, my, me being a therapist could cause some of that. Now, um, and as a, I mean, they said being a therapist, some, you know, something you basically shed. So does it ever seem kind of trippy with their layers of, pers of perspective on top of yours? It doesn't seem trippy. It's actually helpful because un unlike what you'd assume, it's not always easy to apply what I know intellectually as a professional to my life. So even though I know something isn't good, like I I've told you guys all the time, just because I know better doesn't mean I do better. It is so much easier for me to look out at someone else's life or situation and have certain thoughts about it, right? To be like, oh, um, that I can see that so clearly that pattern of behavior when you're in it, you, it's not that clear, right? You're too close to it. It's almost like you just can't see the forest through the trees. Definitely that. And so there's so many things that Jana would notice that I wouldn't. And then there were other things that I kind of knew were going on and she would just like call me out, which was very important and why I love her so much. Um, and I don't shed being a therapist before a session, but the thing that I think people don't always understand about therapists is that to, we, we are always seeing things and situations and people through our educational lens, meaning like I understand psychology and sometimes I'm like, well, that's, that's like gaslighting. Like I'll catch that right away. I'd be like, that person's pretty toxic. Like that's not the way you talk to people, you know, like I'll acknowledge those things or that seems very narcissistic, right? I'll have those, those thoughts and that that's how I view my world. However, there's a big shift and a huge difference when I go into an, my office to be a therapist, like th putting on my therapist hat is like, I don't, I mean, you guys would recognize me cause I'm still the same, but I don't talk much. Like I ask a lot of questions, right. And I'm quiet and I give you time and I try to hold safe space. It's a different me I'm in therapist zone. And so I don't really shed it before my sessions, but I'm definitely not putting on my therapist hat. Like I am showing up as the patient, not the therapist because I can't therapize myself. Right. Don't even know if that's a word, but it is today. And, um, does my therapist feel intimidated? No. Um, at least I haven't had one that that has been most of the time I think they find it to be it's a little bit of a challenge like I said because I'll push back but I think it also kind of helps with the educational component where I already know what they're talking about so there's it's like easier for them to offer up assistance or insights or other techniques because I'm like oh yeah well, let's do that um okay and then there was a comment on this it says also like a therapist what is it like having knowledgeable clients who know the workings of their illnesses or illness but are still struggling and I guess the same way that it, you know my therapist would look at me because I still struggle right we're all human I think I have a ton of patients that have been super knowledgeable but still struggle and a lot of times it's either doing something different is just so difficult. That's one part, right? But there's also the fact of like changing behavior takes time and a lot of effort. And not to mention that just because we know about it doesn't mean that we necessarily have the tools to do something about it. Does that make sense? And so, yeah, I don't, I don't have any issues with that. I think everybody can still struggle even no matter how much we know, we can still have a hard time. Um, kind of going back to what I was saying about myself, like just because I know better doesn't mean I always do better. And I think keeping that in mind and recognizing that that we're all human, you know, 
doing the best we can. It doesn't, it's, it's not bothersome at all. I think having them be really knowledgeable about their mental illness, let's say, allows me to get into deeper conversations with them about it without doing so much of that educational component because it's like they already know and that can be really helpful. And I think just, you know, having knowledgeable clients in general is is helpful. It's beneficial for them and it makes, you know, therapy feel like it's moving somewhere more quickly. That makes sense. I hope so. Okay, cool. Let's move on to question number three. This question is, hi, Katie, is it possible to have symptoms of a disorder and not have the full blown thing? I struggle with fear of abandonment, attachment issues, self-harm, and an unstable sense of self, but I don't think I struggle badly enough to have it classified as BPD. Is this a thing? Thank you for all that you do. Now, there were a lot of comments on this, and we're getting into where every question is a shitload of comments, but this, let's just start here. Now, um, oh, actually, let's, let's continue to read because I think this will all tie together. This comment says, yes, please answer this question. My therapist keeps writing assessment, middle-aged woman with cluster B dynamics and complex PTSD. What does this mean? Is he referring that you have BPD and CPTSD traits, but not enough criteria to be diagnosed with a full-blown thing like the other person said? Ugh. Another person says, similarly, I would like to know how to tell if you have a disorder or if you have symptoms that match in the DSM, but you don't feel like it's bad enough to be classified as such. I think I might have bipolar too, but haven't told my therapist because I still do what needs to be done and she hasn't brought it up. So I don't know how to tell. Another person, same for me. My therapist says I have CPTSD with some BPD traits. BPD is borderline personality disorder, by the way. What does it mean? Does it mean that I have BPD characteristics, but not enough to be diagnosed? Or is it possible for me to get a BPD diagnosis later on in therapy? I just don't get it. And then this final question says, exactly, same. And what if you hate yourself, your body, you've tried to purge, but you can't. You feel anxious when eating, et cetera, and have huge anxiety over it every day, but not, but don't have enough symptoms for a diagnosis. Like I'm not underweight anymore, not purging often enough, question mark. And is it possible to feel even worse psychologically, even once you show less behavioral symptoms? Okay, there's a lot to unpack here, but it is possible. I'm here to tell you that it is possible for us to have symptoms of a disorder and to not meet all the criteria in the DSM or the ICD-10 in order to be given a full diagnosis. Now, I just want to throw it out there that the DSM and the ICD-10 are both just diagnostic manuals. They're not the end-all be-all. They cannot include all the symptoms. They are not, they do not keep up with the times. I swear to God, the DSM, it's because I work like most of my schooling and training was utilizing the DSM. I swear to God, it's like 10 years behind always. And the research that they pull from, it, it, there's a bunch of, we could really dig into the reasons why I don't particularly enjoy the DSM, but it's the best we've got. And it's like a helpful way to start. Like I was on Dr. Drew's podcast the other day and he doesn't fully agree with me on this. And I wasn't going to argue with him because everybody has their own opinion, right? He thinks the DSM is super, super helpful. I think it's a, it's a good place to start, but we cannot discredit people's experience and other symptoms and try to fit people into these whole, like, you know, make it fit to this criteria. It's like putting a square peg in a round hole kind of thing. You're like, don't jam it in there. 
it doesn't fit. It's its own thing. Each person has their own thing. And so anyways, I'm going to get off topic here. Let's bring it back. Yes, you can have symptoms of a disorder and not meet that full criteria. Again, because the DSM criteria is pretty specific and you will have to have like at least two of these for at least two weeks all day. You know, it's got all these like time constraints and oh, this has been going on for at least two months. There's all sorts of time limitations and numbers of symptoms that you have to get. And I have tons of patients, especially when it comes to like BPD and complex PTSD, which I have a video about that on my main channel. Just look up Katie Morton BPD versus CPTSD and it should come up. But anyway, there is some overlap with their symptomology, but the main difference is that those with BPD have this fear of abandonment, which is not present in any of the, you know, PTSD diagnoses. So, um, anyways, I say that because we can have these, uh, that's why it's, it's like, it's important that we talk with our therapists, that we track some of the symptoms and we try to figure out where we do fit, knowing that getting that dry diagnosis isn't always necessary and it, we might just fall into like what we what used to be called an NOS type of diagnosis. They've changed them now, but it used to all be NOS. So let's say we thought we might have uh, an eating disorder, for example, because that's like what I work in the most. So if we don't meet the criteria for anorexia, we don't meet the criteria for bulimia or binge eating disorder, we fall into EDNOS, meaning eating disorder not otherwise specified. So it's kind of like a catch-all, like we can have an anxiety disorder not otherwise specified. Like I don't meet the criteria for generalized anxiety disorder, panic, uh, panic disorder, but I got something. And so we'll put it into there. And so this person who says, I struggle with fear of abandonment, attachment issues, self-harm, and an unstable sense of self, but I don't think I struggle badly enough to have it classified as BPD. I might argue based on, you know, those struggles that you do, because um, it's not really uh, badly enough. I mean, maybe your functionality is still there, but it's all about an assessment. And it's something that I really think we should all talk with our therapist or other mental health professional about. A diagnosis is something that you have a right to ask about. And there is nothing wrong with you telling your therapist, hey, you talked about bipolar disorder, but I don't really think I have that. Can you explain to me what made you think I did have it? Because from what I understand, you know, it looks like this and I don't have that. Have these dialogues, you know. You talked about complex PTSD and borderline. What's the difference? And I don't think I meet the criteria for borderline. We, any clinician who's doing their job is going to be more than open to having a conversation with you about it and dis describing to you what symptoms they see and why they think that leans toward this way versus that way. Cause a huge component of what a therapist or any other professional really in the medical field in general does is we come, we come to the table with quite a few potential uh, diagnoses that you could be st struggling with. And then slowly but surely we weed some of them out. We call it differential diagnosis, meaning you could have bipolar disorder or you could maybe it's possible just have really, really bad anxiety and have panic attacks. I'm not sure. So I'm going to rule one of these out in order to rule the other one in. Right. And so talk to your therapist ask them about it. If you don't think it tracks, if you don't think that's the right diagnosis, it's okay to speak up. It's okay to say, I don't really agree. I've had many patients over the years do that. Sometimes we come to terms like we, they weren't sharing certain symptoms with me, or maybe I missed something. Right. And so we'll change it. But a lot of times it just helps 
I think for us to feel like we're part of the conversation and not just like stamped and given this label and we don't have any say as you know about that we're just like forced to be like oh okay you know that's what you told me and anyway so speak up and talk about it and then to move through the others um somebody said uh they said assessment middle-aged woman with cluster b dynamics and complex ptsd what does this mean is she uh, is he referring that you have bpd and complex pts traits but not enough criteria to be diagnosed with a full-blown thing so it sounds like first of all we don't use the clusters anymore i know some people might but that's like kind of old dsm ways and people don't do that anymore uh, um if anybody's wondering what those clusters are they used to cluster certain personality disorders so like borderline personality disorder narcissistic personality disorder histrionic they used to cluster them in a b c d i want to say um i'm forgetting how many because we don't use that anymore but that's that's what they mean it's like it, it hits into this cluster we're not sure which one it means like what which cluster like which within that cluster because there could be like two to four different diagnoses in there so they're saying there's something in there that you know there's some symptoms we're just not sure where it lands and it sounds like they diagnose you with ptsd with complex ptsd um but there's not enough to to diagnose a personality disorder that's what i would say and so i think yeah he is referring that you have bpd traits and complex ptsd okay um, and then let's just make sure I didn't miss anything here. The one, the person who said that I'd like to know how to tell if you have a disorder, if your symptoms match the DSM, I think I might have bipolar too, but I haven't told my therapist, please tell your therapist. I've said this over and over in my regular videos is like with your expertise and my experience, we're working together towards a healthy mind and a healthy body. And that's because I don't know all that you're feeling. I don't know all that you're going through. And the sooner you can offer your therapist any information or like if you've watched a video of mine or someone else's and you're like oh my god they're talking about you know this diagnosis hmm i think that's what i have that's helpful to tell your therapist you know i was watching this video about panic attacks and i used to just think it was me having you know like i thought my heart was just racing weird but i think it might be a panic attack tell your therapist they will assess and you know talk it through with you it can only help so please speak up and let them know and then um, someone says, my therapist says I have complex PTSD with some BPD traits. That just means that you don't have all of the traits needed for a diagnosis of BPD. Um, and that's what, that's what that means. And then someone said, uh, and you could, so they have said, or is it possible for me to get a BPD diagnosis later on in therapy? Yes. Sometimes we can have some symptoms or some criteria and our therapist will notice it and you know write it down but something like a personality disorder i personally like to see patients for at least six months ideally a year before i offer that diagnosis because it's such a the way they're diagnosed they're such pervasive meaning like it hangs around for a long time and it's like entrenched in our life right it's such a pervasive issue that i want to make sure that i'm seeing it through all seasons of the year so i can notice if like oh maybe you know in summertime this is what happens or it goes away for this chunk of time hmm is it seasonal maybe you know i want to make sure i've seen an entire year so that i can properly assess to make sure and so you might at the beginning just have bpd characteristics and later be diagnosed with with that or maybe it's changed to something else as we gather more data right and then the final part the final question about it's eating disorder based like what if you hate yourself and your body and tried to purge um you know but it's not enough symptoms for a diagnosis 
it would be what they call now, what used to be EDNOS, remember I said eating disorder not otherwise specified, is now um, OSFED, and it's otherwise specified eating or feeding disorder. I, I just do not like the acronym, but that's what they've changed it to be. And so that would be what it would fall into um, because, you know, eating disorders are chameleons. Sometimes they make us want to purge and other times they want to restrict and then we want to binge. And then sometimes, you know, there can be all sorts of things that we go through. And I've had patients, you know, change from one to the other all the time. And so then the final question says, is it possible to feel even worse psychologically, even once you show less behavioral symptoms? 100%. We need to start looking at behavioral symptoms as our coping skills, right? Or the outward expression of something going on inside. So just because we aren't showing it out doesn't mean that we don't feel it inside, right? It's like... um I don't know. It's almost like the ocean, like the top of it. If you, if it's like a calm day, it just, it's just like barely there's little ripples on it as you know, the ocean's kind of, it's a body of water. So it's moving along. Right. And you can see those little ripples and you think, Oh, it's so calm out today. So pristine, so beautiful. But underneath there's like all sorts of life and there could be a shark swimming by and tons of fishies and all sorts of stuff. And I think people are like that on the outside. We can look like we got our shit together. You know, it can like steady hand, super calm inside chaos. We can, we're really good at chameleoning and really good at stuffing down and moving forward. So don't think that your behavioral symptoms, even when it comes to eating disorders, have to be a certain number or amount in order for us to get help or be worthy of getting help. We're all worthy of getting help. And the sooner we reach out, the better. So yeah. Okay. Let's move on to question number four. And you guys see how many questions are in each question. That's why we only have seven today. Now this one says, this is a question about intimacy after trauma. I've been in therapy for almost two years. Several months ago, we uncovered some repressed sexual trauma memories, and it's caused me to dissociate any time we get close to touching those memories. As much as I'd love to work on things, I just can't get to them without fully shutting down. It's okay. It can be hard. Some days it is so bad that even hearing the word trauma causes dissociation. It has recently caused some issues with my marriage. I'm married to a wonderful and patient man, but intimacy has become an issue. There are many times where I just can't stay present during sex and my brain starts to scream, stop. And the next thing I know, I'm gone. I want to be with my husband and I know he's not hurting me, but my thoughts keep going back. If I can't address this trauma in therapy, how am I ever going to be present and enjoy sex again with my husband? I've tried EMDR, but the dissociation was too bad to continue with that. With talk therapy about this trauma, I shut down completely. I just feel so stuck in a place and I don't that I don't want to be in. How do I move past this? Okay, now there's one more question on this, or actually two, but this is a great thing to talk about because healing from sexual trauma and engaging in consensual intimacy or sex later in life can be difficult. And especially in this case, when it's been repressed for so long and we uncover things, it can be really hard for us to re-engage because it's like all of a sudden we have these huge revelations and it can be really hard to like, you know, put it back in Pandora's box for lack of a better term. And what I would encourage you to try to do, first of all, if you're not already doing this, please include your husband, at least in a couple therapy sessions here and there so that he can understand. Yes, he's loving and understanding and super compassionate, but I do think there's something to letting them be part of it and letting them know a little bit as much as we can to let him in. Because he's doing his best and he's trying to be patient and understanding, but sometimes it, it's good to bring them in. If nothing, nothing 
more than him getting to ask any questions he has. I can't tell you how many times I'll have a, a partner or a spouse or a parent come into a session only to ask certain things that the patient thought they already knew, right? And we don't we don't always know where they're at or what they understand or don't understand. And I, I believe it can be really healing and really educational for him. So I cannot encourage you to do that enough. Now, the second thing I want to talk about is the fact that if dissociation is just so intense for us, so overwhelming, there are other treatment modalities. I talk a ton, I talk about a ton of different things in my book, but one, and somebody even left a comment about this, which I loved, where they utilize a lot of like polyvagal theory and like somatic experiencing. Now, I don't want to get too nerdy with it, but what this means is heal, we can heal through movement talking things out actually only works for about 40% of people who've been traumatized doing traditional talk therapy. Now I might be a little off of the numbers. It might be like, you know, 38% or 42%, but it's somewhere around there. I remember thinking it's about 60% of people that it does not work for. So know that you're not alone. And that's why there are things like EMDR, or there are things like somatic experiencing where we, we shake and we move our body and we try to heal any of the body memories that might be coming up for us through movement, through therapeutic movement. So finding a therapist that does that can be helpful. Then there's other things like even schema therapy, which I kind of think of as like, and I'm not a schema based therapist. So if I'm misrepresented it, please feel free to let me know. I no offense will be taken. But when it comes to schema therapy, I think of it kind of as a way of like separating out the different parts of ourselves and how we survive trauma. It, it's almost like we we break ourselves into pieces, different schemas as a way to not only externalize the trauma and the pain, but to also be able to tap into the, you know, protector of us or the, the child of us, or, you know, maybe the person who felt like a victim or, you know, to be able to to do that and tap into certain portions and then jump back out and then tap into that and jump back out. And it can it can help us combat that dissociation a little bit more. And then here is my homework for you. So finding another modality is wonderful. There are also like different treatments out there when it comes to things like vagus nerve stimulation, talk to a neurologist. I don't want to get into all of that stuff. There's a ton of different experimental treatments for uh, PTSD things, you know, utilizing things like psilocybin or um what's it called? Ketamine. I, you know, I've had patients have success with ketamine, psilocybin still very new, but there will be more treatments that are available. People are doing research right now. And I think that's really great. But my homework for you is to figure out how, what is soothing to you. Now, when I say soothing, I don't mean safe. When I say soothing, I mean, what brings you back? What's grounding? What is neutral in your system? Meaning it doesn't make your heart race or you feel overwhelmed or start to sweat. And it also doesn't make you like super, super, Oh, calm and sleepy. What What's just in the middle? Like, you know, like I've talked about how repetitive behaviors can be really soothing to our nervous system. So a lot of people, my patients included, and a lot of viewers have told me putting the dishes away, folding laundry, making a bed, doing things, vacuuming that like it's repetition, right? And that can be really soothing to our nervous system, you know, compounded with some of the movement that goes with it. And we can feel okay. We can be calm and neutral. And so I want you to do some personal research and finding out what helps you stay present. Can we count colors? Do we go through the alphabet and like what starts with A? Okay. Um, I can't even 
what even starts with A in this room right now. I am not, you guys, this is terrible, but you know what I mean. You come up with an item that starts with each letter of the alphabet and what color is it? Like, tell me about it. You know, um, you can do all of that stuff, you know, like let's say I was in the kitchen. I'd be like, oh, an apple. I know that, you know, I could probably get more creative than that, but and then we move on and B would be like light bulb, the bulb there, and then C would be cord. And doing that in, in your space can help bring you back and keep you grounded. Or maybe it's like silly putty, or maybe it's consensual touch from your husband. Like, can you touch my back, please? Just a little bit, that helps. It might not, but I'm just saying there are a lot of different things we can try to do, but I want you to be a detective about it and figure out what works for you because everybody's gonna be different. Everyone has a different ability to, to stay just to be grounded and you're having a really tough time. So we're going to have to figure out things that keep you here. And also as a second component, a little bit of secondary homework is taking care of our basic needs will make us, it like builds up a little bit of resilience. So it'll make us less vulnerable to these shoo, dissociative episodes. So that's just another thing. And when I mean basic needs, I mean like, are you eating regularly every three to four hours? Are we eating a healthy balanced meal? Or are we like, you know, eating a whole bag of Oreos or chips or pizza or something? Are we binge eating? And are we getting enough sleep? Probably not. Are we drinking enough water? You know, just are we showering regularly? I would encourage you to have at least one shower every other day if you can do that. But you know, those are just some of the basic things that we can think of to help us not shut down because you will be able to move past this. You will be able to heal and have a healthy, happy sex life with your husband. Sometimes we just you know, we need a little extra support and we need some more tools and resources because we're feeling overwhelmed. Now there was a comment on this that says, this is very similar to me, but the issues with intimacy came after the memories came back or I realized that they were there. Is that normal? Yes. And it sounds like this is the same with this person too. Just FYI, the person who asked a question is like the same thing. After they uncovered those issues, then they had the uh, the intimacy issues, right? So it's like they uncovered the memories and then they had intimacy issues. And that's very normal because, you know, why, if we hadn't uncovered them and come to turn, you know, realize what had happened, then we might not have had such like a visceral reaction. So very, very normal. It said, I have assumed that because the problems haven't been there the whole time that I must've been making the trauma up. Our brain is a fascinating organ and it does a great job of suppressing things so that we can continue on. But then we get to a point in our life where our brain's like, Hey, I have this like wound that needs to be healed. I've just been, we've been ignoring and like shoving in the back, like just keep closing the door, but we'll start having things like body memories, flashbacks, uh, feeling really overwhelmed and not knowing why, uh, breaking down and crying sometimes, right. We'll just start having symptoms of PTSD and we won't really know what's happening. And then we'll come to find out because our brain's like, Hey, Hey, now's a good time. Hey, can we, can we clean that up? We got, we got mess in here. It tells us. And so it's not you making the trauma up. It's just that we were really, really good at suppressing it so we could survive. And the last question on this is, is dissociating without any triggers a thing? Yes. Cause we don't always know what they are. Like if I just think about my trauma and suddenly dissociate without being around something or something specific who reminds me of it. Oh, okay. If you're thinking about your trauma, that's the trigger. Boom, you could dissociate. But we can also dissociate without having any knowledge of what our triggers are. Like I was just preparing a video that'll go live in a couple of weeks about 
like trauma triggers and how, how we can like educate ourselves that we're trying to help a loved one because we, we too often don't do that detective work where we try to pay attention to, cause it's usually our five senses that'll be triggering, right? Something we smell, something we taste, right? Those types of things. We'll, we'll notice something in our environment because our, our brain's wired to always seek out threat, like pay attention to things, see if something could be threatening or harmful, right? So if we, where brain's always doing that and we're going to have certain things that we attach to that trauma. Like maybe it's a certain candle or deodorant or something and we smell it. I'm talking just smell and we come in contact with it. We might not know that that's the trigger. We just, we just know that we went out to the park and we walked by this person and then we had a panic attack or dissociated, right? We can just have an episode of dissociation and not have, not be able to attach it to something, even though the trigger could have been there. So I just want to throw out all the cases that Yes, we can dissociate without being triggered, like specifically by something. Yes, we can uh, dissociate from a trigger and just not know what the trigger was. And then the third is that if we do focus or think about our trauma, that that is your trigger and that would be why you're dissociating. Okay? I hope that that makes sense and clears that up a little bit. Let's move on to question number five. And it says, hey, Katie. What do you do as a therapist if a client suddenly stops seeing you? I've become bored with my therapist and I just want to never go again because I don't want to have to explain why I'm stopping it. Me just leaving with no explanation has happened in the past and I can't seem to stick with a therapist. Interesting pattern. She knows I've been thinking about stopping therapy and that I do it all the time. What do you do as a therapist? This is interesting and I had to think about it a bit because... The tricky thing is that if you just don't want to come back and see me, you just don't come back and see me. And I would probably leave in the notes in my file of, you know, that I'm keeping on you that like, I believe it was this pattern of behavior and that you tend to just leave without explaining. You just like to stop things. And, and unfortunately that pattern has repeated itself. That's what I would put. And so there's nothing that I can do because it's up to you if you want to continue, right? We, we have to advocate for ourselves. We have to go to therapy. A therapist isn't going to chase you down and like force you to have a session. <laughs> I feel like that's what court mandated therapy kind of is though. And that's why I don't really find it that effective. I used to do a lot of that when I was uh, first starting out. I did a lot of court mandated therapy at the, the center for individual and family counseling in North Hollywood. Great, great center for really low cost counseling. If you're in the LA area, I highly recommend you check it out if you need that as a resource. Um, wonderful therapist, wonderful supervisors there. I loved my supervisor. Um, anyways, we can't force you. And so if you just stop, there's nothing that we'll do. And there's nothing that we really can do. I may give one call or one text just saying, Hey, you know, notice you didn't make an appointment. You know, just wanted to let you know that I have time. If you need it, call me if you want, boom. And that would be it. So there'd be some little follow-up. Unfortunately, that's all. And the thing that I, I do as, as a therapist, I, I find I want to challenge you is I want you to break this pattern even if you want to leave this therapist, which is totally fine, I'd be curious, first of all, my homework for you is to figure out what it is that you're bored about. Like you're bored with your therapist. About what? Explain that. Tell me about it. What's boring? What's happened? How come we're lacking motivation and we just want to like cut and run? What's going on? Okay. I'm curious because I'm curious, you know, I'm sure this happens in other parts of your life too. I'm just putting it out there. That's my hypothesis. So I want you to let me know what is so boring. And also out of curiosity, I'd like to know what you are working on with your therapist currently. 
Because hmm. that's, you know, that could give us information too. Just doing my therapist suspicious thing, okay? So those are some thoughts I have about that. And then I really want you to explain to them that you don't want to come back and why and why you want to end therapy. I Therapy is a the thing that is so amazing about therapy is that it's this safe relationship and interaction that we get with another human where we have an opportunity to try a different way and they'll know that we're trying a different way. There's no pressure. There's no like actual real world consequences. This is like, I can try this. And if halfway through, I decide I don't want to talk about it anymore. I just say, Hey, I don't want to talk about it anymore. A therapist is going to say, interesting. You know, is there any, you know, what about that was to overwhelm? They're going to want to dig into it with you. If I was out, you know, with a friend and they were talking about something that was just difficult for me, I'm like, I don't want to talk about this anymore. They're like, are you kidding me? We're talking What? like, there would be some pushback. There could be some real world consequences. My relationships could suffer, but in therapy, it's beautiful because they're there for you to help you work out your shit and to figure out where this is coming from because you leaving without any explanation is not a healthy pattern in any kind of relationship and I think a therapeutic one could be a very very good relationship to try to work through this you know work I guess it's not even work through it it's like figure out where this is coming from and find another way to interact especially with therapists because you said that you can't seem to stick with a therapist why what's going on is it things don't move quickly enough for you? Is it that you need a certain like tough love, softer, you know, more nurturing, like what is it? Or is it that, you know, they want to talk about things that are too uncomfortable for you and then you don't like it anymore? Or, you know, what is like, let's think about this because this is a pattern and I want you to break the pattern. And the only way we can break it is by trying our best to be curious about it and to act in a different way and see what happens. Because the truth about ending a therapy relationship is you could just go into session and just say, hey, I'm just, I think I'm just gonna try to see someone else. Um, you know, this hasn't, it, you helped me on this, this, and this, but I really wanted to also work on that and I just really wanna see a specialist. Or I feel kind of bored and here's what's coming up for me and this has happened before, but I really wanna leave, but I thought I would try to tell you about it first. Again, therapists don't think take things personally in the way that like regular relationships do. We're gonna be curious about what this is and if there's something they could have done to make it better or if you want them to try to change this or that, they're gonna to try to work with you because th again, therapy is about you. So. That's, those are my thoughts and that's what I would do. Okay, let's move on to question number six. And this question says, hey Katie, happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. It says, how is it possible to handle doctor's appointments, especially OBGYN, when sexual abuse has happened? Great question. I am so afraid that this will re-traumatize me or that I will struggle with flashbacks, with flashbacks afterwards. I need an appointment with a new OBGYN because I've been taking birth control pills for several years and I know that my body does not tolerate them anymore. Okay, so we got to get in. The doctor got them that I got them from has never done an ex examination and was really, I was really glad about this, but I know that the new one will probably insist on doing the examination because I'm nearly already over 18. Yeah, they will. Even though I do not have sex and they were only for period cramps. I am so afraid of it and think about not going because I don't think I can handle this. The last time I got sexually abused was not that long ago. And face masks are also mandatory during the visit. I know. So tricky thing about face masks is we can feel disconnected and less human and it's hard for us to feel safe or okay. Okay. And the masks are still a big trigger for me. How can I tell the doctor what has happened? 
I can't just say it and, um, accompaniment is not allowed due to COVID. Yeah, I know that sucks too. We can't bring people in. And also how can I handle the exam when they put, when they pressure me to do it? I was too embarrassed to talk to my therapist about it. I also struggled with self-harm and an eating disorder, if that is relevant. Sorry for the long text and thank you so much for everything you do for us. Greetings from Germany. Hello. I was gonna I was gonna say moin, but I don't know if this is gonna be released in the morning, probably. Moin. Um, anyways. Okay, a couple things. And I've been having issues, trust me, it's not just you. COVID has fucked up a lot of things like this where I've encouraged, you guys know for years, I've been telling people like, bring a, a close friend with you. Have someone there who's supportive. Someone who can hold your hand, walk you through it. Now we have had some creative members in our community and I think this is a beautiful thing. And here's something that I'm gonna you know, recommend is since we can't bring someone with us, put in an earbud or two and bring them along on your phone. I know it's not ideal, but you could do anything from just having them talk you through it or keep you calm. Um, one of my patients back in the day had a good friend read their favorite book to them. I know that sounds kind of weird, but it was in order for them to take public transportation, not the exact same scenario, but it helped calm them down and distract them. I mean, maybe they read some Harry Potter to you. That's one of my favorite books. Um, and you can keep that in your earbuds and you can just focus on that while you do the things, kind of like distracting them pulling this away. So that's one thing that I would like to mention because it's a way to kind of circumvent all the chaos that's happening because of COVID and the fact that we can't have support people there, which I find horrible. So there's that. Now, the other stuff that I used to offer and talk about still can apply here. And that is setting yourself up for success, meaning that when you call to make that appointment, Maybe have a friend do the calling for you. You can put it on speaker. If there's information they don't have that you need to give like birth dates or, you know, I don't know, they should probably know your birthday, but maybe they won't. You know, you can give all the information and your insurance if you're, well, you're in Germany. So, you know, whatever. If, if you need all this stuff, like whatever things that you need, you can be there to offer that, but let them tell them about the trauma and to tell them that you're very scared about the examination so they can mark it in your chart. Because the thing that is important for all of us to understand is that the nurses or the front, whoever's at the front of these clinics or wherever you're going, right? There's always like a biller or a secretary at the front. They make notes and write things down and they put it in your chart so that when the doctor gets there, they'll read your chart and they'll be like, oh, Katie, okay, she's here for her pap smear and birth control, blah, blah, blah. Because they kind of know what you're there for. And they'll write on that. I've seen it in the hospital. I didn't, unfortunately, did not work in an OBGYN, you know, regular place, but I worked in a hospital. And you'll see flags in people's charts that tell you about things like that. Like um, whether or not they have a service animal or whether or not they need a back in the day, it'd be like they have a support person or need more time or, you know, there's even accommodations that would be in there, but there'd be flags for things like, you know, tr uh, traumatic past triggers are blank, blank, blank. It, they add stuff in. So having someone call ahead of time and ask for that to be put in the chart so that the doctor is aware is going to be so helpful. That way you don't have to say it. Now, if you could maybe write down a couple of the things, because when we're preparing to tell someone about this, it can help to write down a few bullet points of what we want to get out and what we want them to understand. The bullet points might be that, you know, I was sexually abused and so I struggle with any physical touch from strangers. Therefore, going to the doctor is really difficult. You know, write down those few things that we might want to tell our therapist, for example. Practice saying them out loud at home by yourself. 
I know it makes us sound a little crazy, but everybody has to do this. We got to practice. You could look in the mirror, watch yourself as you say it, or just like say it out loud a couple times so that when we do go to say it to someone, we don't like completely black out and like dissociate or feel overwhelmed. And that's a way to practice. And then we go and do the thing. So if you can tell your therapist, I'm mentioning that and the prep for that, because then they can be your advocate too. I mean, depending on who your therapist is and what their own rules and regulations are, they might be in your headphones, be able to be on, you know, one of your sessions is over audio only as you go do that. Or maybe they can show up for you and wait in the waiting room. I don't know what Germany's, you know, rules are right now, but there's things, things and ways that therapists can support us when we're trying to do something like that. And they, if they're able to, they'll probably offer it. And then having a friend help call ahead so that they mark it in your chart will ensure that they are aware and then they can, you know, be a little bit more sensitive. And one thing that I would say is that it can help to find, if you have the ability to, it can help to request a doctor that is a different, um, a different sex than the abuser. I mean, if you're abused by a woman, you see a man, if you're abused by a man, you can see a woman and all of that can help as well. So yeah, that's what I would do. And since you know, they're probably going to ask you to do the exam and I would, I would assume so too. We want to call ahead and we want to let them know ahead. And if we need to have a friend or a therapist do it for us, that, that would be your best bet. Now I know it sucks and you're like, I don't even know how am I going to do this? Blah, blah. You got this. It always seems scarier and bigger than it really is. And people, when, when people are told about something like this, they, they're kind and compassionate and understanding, like especially if we've decided to tell someone that means we trust them enough. Uh, I'm like pretty much a hundred percent that they're going to be supportive and understanding. So do this. You got it. Okay. Now a comment on this says as an add on, what if you've been in your perception inappropriately touched by a doctor as a kid, but they were just doing their job. I'm traumatized and can't go to OBGYNs because of it, but he probably didn't mean it. So I feel so torn. And then another person says, and what if both of my childhood sexual abuse and self-harm scars keep me from going to the OBGYN? I don't self-harm anymore, at least I'm trying to, but I have scars all over my legs and I'm worried the doctor will ask me about it. Okay, so there's more on this. Um, but the first question about if you have a perception that they did this to you as a kid, but they're just doing your, you know, they're just doing your job as an adult, it doesn't really matter I'm not going to say it doesn't matter, but you're an adult now and you're looking back and you're like, well, the doctor was just doing their job. Yeah, but that doesn't mean little you in that moment wasn't still scared and traumatized, right? That still exists. And so my encouragement actually for you would be to see a therapist and start working through that. Talk about it. Talk about it in a real way. If you feel comfortable, talk about it with a friend and vent about it that way and and try to process it through as best we can. Again, I know talk therapy is not doesn't always work for everybody, but it's a great place to start because processing that through and getting it to a point where it doesn't seem as crazy or terrifying or overwhelming or any of that will allow you then to make an appointment. And um, then you can do all the things I said for the other person, like calling ahead of time, you know, seeing a male or female, depending on your preference, you can kind of make it work for you a little bit and make it easier. And if you can bring a supportive person in an earbud or have them come in with you, depending on where you live, I would do that too. Now, for the person who feels that they, you know, they're worried about their self-harm scars, I don't want to say like that they're definitely going to ask you about them, but we should prepare a, an answer. So the truth about it is that a lot of times doctors and nurses 
stick to the medical model and they don't always fully understand self-injury. I, I can't tell you how many calls I've, when I used to work in the hospital system, I have to go down to the ER to check someone out. And I'd be like, you know, we do a quick suicide assessment, but I knew it wasn't a suicide attempt, you know, um, because they just get scared and people don't know what to do. So what I would encourage you to do ahead of time is prepare your answer. And I'm going to give you one example of an answer and hopefully this is helpful. So something I would encourage you to tell them, and if this is true, I don't know, but I'm just, this is what I, if, if they heard this, they would be fine. So you could say to them, if they ask, if they ask about the self-harm scars, you can say, yeah, I used to, I used to self-injure, but I've been in therapy and working really hard. And, uh, I've been, I've been, you know, I don't self-harm anymore and I'm still, I'm still working on it, but it's getting better. That's our answer. The rest of it's none of their business, right? So that's, I would just prepare. And again, repeating it out loud to yourself over and over before your, your appointment will make it not so, make it, won't, it won't be as scary to say, it won't make it, It'll make it not be as difficult to get that out when you're actually face to face with someone. That makes sense. Okay. Um, and then the person also says, I was also sexually abused and the thought of getting naked in front of somebody else is kind of terrifying. Additionally, I've never been to an OB, uh, OBGYN. And for that reason alone, oh, and if anybody doesn't know what I'm saying, when I'm saying OBGYN, that is essentially a... Uh, what does it stand for even you guys it's just I always call it like a female doctor because they um I'm just gonna put, let's find out exactly what this is an obstetrician gynecologist okay I was gonna say gynecologist but I was like what's the OB for obstetrician so they're a healthcare professional that specializes in female reproductive health people trained as OBGYN specialize in both ob um, obstetrics and gynecology obstetrics involves working with pregnant women oh gotcha including delivering babies okay so that's what that is just so we're all on the same page because I know I was saying OBGYN and some people might not know what that means um so I said additionally I've never been to an OBGYN and for that reason alone I'm already scared so my anxiety about that event is pretty high any tips on getting the courage to go up um courage up to go at some point I worry that I'll never go and put it off for as long as possible I think Again, back to the initial uh, advice that I gave to that first question really applies here. A lot of times just preparing ahead, letting them know that we're uncomfortable, letting them know that we're worried, maybe picking, like I've always seen a female gynecologist and that might just be my preference and not everybody's, but I, I preferred it and I found one that I really loved and I saw a few until I found one that I actually wanted to see, even though obviously nobody wants to go, but I, I enjoyed, her name was Maria, she was wonderful and I went to her for years because she was just so caring and thoughtful and like told me whatever, what was going to happen before anything happened and I just, I enjoyed it, it was better. So finding someone that you like is important, but then also calling ahead can be helpful also, it can help in therapy to do some exposure therapy around that. And what I mean by that is first, we have to find things that soothe our system, help us feel okay. And then secondly, we have to slowly expose ourselves to the scary thing. So maybe in therapy, in session, I close my eyes and I imagine that I'm getting in my car to go to my appointment. I have a, I have my gynecologist appointment. I close my eyes and I imagine that I'm doing that. And then therapist brings us back. Okay, we stop. Okay, that was enough. I, I parked at the doctor's office in my imagination, but I didn't get out of the car and I do some soothing things and then we get do it again. And so you just kind of build up slowly through this like hierarchy of fears, meaning like 
having to make the appointment maybe as a five. Okay, well, what about like planning to make that appointment, right? We kind of track back. So making this little like ladder of and the top of it being going to the gyno for my appointment and the bottom being, you know, creating this ladder, <laughs> we can come up with, you know, some things to kind of slowly march our way through. And so I would encourage you to find someone who can do some exposure therapy for you. If you're looking for a therapist like that in their bios or online, it would probably say something like they work a lot with anxiety, phobias, PTSD, I'm trying to think of what else. They might even say they do exposure therapy, but those are just some of the things that I would look for. And I think that that could be really helpful and help you work up the courage to go. Okay. Now the final question on this one says, as an add-on, what if I can't go to the gynecologist because of a bad experience as a teen in which nothing happened? I mean, I felt horrible and I hated being touched, but nothing inappropriate happened. I mean, I have a couple of thoughts on this. Now, number one, if you, you said nothing inappropriate happened. I just want to check in on that because sometimes we can minimize or invalidate ourselves. And so if you feel like something bad happened, please speak up. Please let someone know. But if nothing bad happened, it was just a bad experience because going to the gynecologist is no one's favorite experience. Or, I mean, I can't imagine anybody wanting to go. It's just icky and we don't like it, right? That's okay. Again, I think part of it is going to be either distracting in the moment, bringing in a support person, or maybe doing some exposure therapy leading up to it. Because you can go, you will be able to, we just have to kind of find a way to soothe and to challenge those thoughts. Again, we're having these like thoughts about, you know, you just didn't like it. It felt horrible. It, I mean, it always feels horrible. I'll be honest. My mom even had to do something. I forget what it was, something with the gyno, but she couldn't go to, she had to drink a bunch of water and not go peak. So her bladder was super full so they could see stuff better. And she was like, that was the most uncomfortable situation of my entire life. Now, all of that stuff is super uncomfortable, but it's how we talk to ourselves about it and how we prepare ahead of time. And so if any of you are out there and you're feeling really, really scared about seeing a gynecologist, I cannot recommend enough that we talk about it in therapy and see a therapist. It's really, really helpful. Preparing ahead and having a supportive person assist us, whether that means them calling to make the appointment, letting them know about our past, or potentially showing up with us or in earbuds, all of that's really helpful. And then there is also... Um, there's a uh, Dr. Mama Jones. Her name is Danielle. She is on YouTube and she has some older videos that I really like about stuff like this. And she, she's a gynecologist. And so she talks a lot about, you know, what to expect. And I would encourage you, you know, to connect maybe with her and her community a little bit, but also those videos hopefully will be helpful if you have any concerns or questions. Like if you're out there and you're like, I don't even know what it's like. And even the thought of it is overwhelming. Like, oh, and my good friend, Dr. Lindsay Doe, her channel Sexplanations, she has a video of her going to her gyno for her like regular checkup and they walk through what they're doing and explain it all. And that might be helpful too, because I think sometimes a lot of it is just, we don't know what we don't know. And the thought of going to the doctor for that could be overwhelming and, and scary. So I hope that that helps. Okay. And if we feel like you know, nothing inappropriate happened, but we just feel horrible about it. I think some exposure therapy and just therapy in general about that will hopefully kind of nip that for you. Okay. Let's move on to question seven. This is, there's a lot, this is a whole page of a document here. And this question says, hi, Katie, I was wondering if an aborted suicide attempt could be considered as a type of trauma. 
I had one several years ago, but never really thought about it much. Symptoms of my depression and other things took priority. Lately, however, my symptoms are almost non-existent, except for a day here or there. Because of this, I can't stop thinking about that night. Oh, we don't have any distractions. Even though I was really drunk, I remember everything. Sometimes when I think about it, I either want to start crying or not talk about it at all. I'm trying to accept that it happened, but knowing how close I was to dying that night makes it hard. I wasn't sure if something like this would be considered traumatic in some way. How can I learn to accept that it happened and not let it affect me so much? Yes, suicide attempts are traumatic. It's a trauma. It's straight up PTSD, especially if you're having these, you're, you know, these symptoms that you're talking about, I would 100% say that you were traumatized. And I know that can sound kind of bizarre. People are like, but I, you know, was taking these actions because I felt hopeless and helpless. And it was the only thing I thought I could do. So how come I'm traumatized by the things that I, I chose to do, you know, it doesn't actually matter wh what we were doing or why it was happening. It's all about emotionally or psychologically what we were able to process or deal with in the moment. And if we attempted our life and, and it didn't, you know, it was like an aborted attempt. We still had that, uh, what is it? It's, it's not, it's, but we worried for our own safety, whether we want to, you know, like it's not an easy thing for our system that's made to keep us alive to purposely try to take our own life. Does that make sense? It like goes against the wiring in our brain. Therefore, when we talk about trauma, what does it mean to be traumatized? It's when we, you know, worry or have a, a, a threat of death or horrible injury from ourselves or someone else that we care about, or we watch, you can even watch something on TV and be traumatized. So if we have any fear of threat or death, yes that's trauma. Yes, that would be being traumatized. And I don't know who needs to hear it, but if you're struggling with that on top of everything else, you know, please talk to someone, please see someone, please see a trauma specialist, or at least a trauma informed therapist, someone who understands trauma. And the reason that you're feeling so bad about it now is because those other symptoms of like depression and other things aren't there to distract you. So you're kind of left with it's like what I, and I don't mean this in a mean way by any means, but I've said this to some of my patients where I'm like, wherever you go, there you are. Cause it's like, they can't escape that. Right. It still happened. And I don't mean that as like a ha ha. I just mean, sometimes we think, oh, if I just like keep busy enough and distract for long enough, it'll go away. But wherever you go, there you are. So when the distractions are gone, that thing is still there. And that's why it's rearing its ugly head right now. And so Yes, it would be traumatic. And how, okay, and how can I learn to accept that it happened and not let it affect me so much? I love that and not let it affect me so much. It's okay for it to affect you so much. That was scary. You were in the darkest place of your life and you didn't see another way out. That's a trauma. It's okay to be affected by that. Now, I know what you probably mean is like, but I don't want it to like ruin my life anymore because now I feel okay and I'm, I'm maybe you're happy to be here and we're glad you're here. I'm happy that you're here. But the acceptance part is kind of, I think more of the therapeutic conversation is, you know, walking through what happened in a little bit. Maybe it's just in your head, walking through the, you know, the days leading up to that. And it might even be writing letters. This sounds kind of silly maybe to some of you, but I found this healing for a lot of my suicidal patients is writing a letter from you now back to you then right before you attempted to take your own life. Because sometimes 
that can that hope and that love and that compassion like i know you feel like things are terrible i know you don't think it's going to get any better no one is going to love you or miss you or whatever right um that can be kind of healing so maybe that's a little homework you do to help you work toward that like acceptance and um processing it a little bit but really seeing a therapist who gets it will be helpful too now there was a comment there are tons of comments there's a comment on this it says um if this question hope hopefully gets picked up i would like to know the differences between suicide intent versus aborted suicide is abort suicide considered an attempt yes they're the same thing it's um oh not intent they meant attempt sorry but an aborted suicide is it could be i mean it depends on I don't want to get into logistics here really because it doesn't really matter but if we try to take our life and at the last minute we're like nope because i've had a patient uh for instance try to overdose and made herself throw up we were okay but then took herself to the hospital so there were a lot of steps in here that like she protected herself even though she initially attempted that was still an attempt but you could call it an aborted attempt but it doesn't really matter you still attempted you just didn't you know there were things that you did to protect yourself so that you're still here and so yes that is still considered an attempt and this person says i tried to end my life twice but when i was close to doing it i simply stopped and i felt so bad for not completing that's the thing too the the shame and the guilt and the embarrassment about it's all twisted up into that and i would encourage you to please please talk to someone so this happened three years ago and i kept this a secret from my therapist please tell them and anyone else because i i feel oh because i feel that nothing happened there's no need to say anything. Also, I don't want this to be a big deal and be treated pitifully or differently. Please let them know. This means that it's not just, you know, fleeting suicidal thoughts or what we call suicidal ideation, where we like think about suicide and maybe trying to put our plan together or whatever. It's more than that. This is, you know, getting you right up to that point where you could have taken your life. And I really think it's important that we we speak to people about it and we let people know because we have the thing that's wonderful about like the silver lining to that shitty situation is that we can kind of track back and see maybe what else we could have done or what supports could we put in place to help us so that we don't get to that point again right we're trying to not get to that point and so first of all know that you're not alone second of all know that we have a wonderful community of support here and complete understanding and you can join even our Facebook group, Katie. It's not for suicide prevention, but it is there for like, you know, peer support. There are ways to get some support, crisis text line, 741-741, lots of resources, but please tell your therapist because even just knowing that, like I've had many of many patients who've attempted suicide at other times. And we always, I always take that information as, it, well, it's like, I guess I, I, I take that as a helpful indicator and something that we dive into and really be curious be detectives about what happened to get us to that point so that we make sure that doesn't happen again that's always my goal we don't want to repeat that scenario and having it get us up to that almost that very edge is it, we're, it's filled with a wealth of knowledge and ways that we can do better next time so that it doesn't happen so please tell your therapist i cannot cannot tell you enough please 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 let them know it doesn't matter that we didn't go through with it all the way what matters is that we talk about it so that we don't feel like that again, so that we have some supports or tools or techniques or a safety plan in place. I have an entire video on YouTube all about safety plans. You can look up Katie Morton safety plans. They'll pop up um, so that we can prevent this from happening. Okay. Now, somebody else asked, also, what is actually the difference between between being traumatized and PTSD? Great question. I talk about this in my book. Are flashbacks... Um, 
or completely dissociating necessary symptoms for a PTSD diagnosis. It's part of it, but not always necessary. I recently found out that I was kind of traumatized, but I've had mental health struggles for the last three years. Is it possible that the traumatic events subconsciously induced or worsened my depression? It is possible. Self-harm and suicidal ideation. Even though I didn't realize I went through something traumatic until recently, and my trauma symptoms just started not long ago. Great question. Now, the difference between being traumatized and having PTSD is really chalk it up to our resilience because I can be traumatized and at the same time you can be traumatized and I can struggle with PTSD like quickly, let's say in the next like month. I have horror, horrific PTSD symptoms and you have none because you have this huge social support system. You have a lot of coping skills that you utilize that are healthy and helpful. Maybe you're already in therapy, so you talk through it and you're like, oh, I'm over it. You know, there can be things that we already have in place or things that we already do in our life that help us feel good and resilient. And we're like, I bounce back. And then some of us don't have that level of resilience and we might have to work harder to build it up. Or maybe we just went through another kind of trauma and it took, oh, it wiped us out. And then this one just knocked us over completely, right? That's the thing with like repeated traumas, even if they're those little T traumas, they build up and can cause PTSD too. So that's the difference. We can be in traumatic events and not develop post-traumatic stress disorder. Does that make sense? It's like we could have something depressing happen to us and not develop major depressive disorder. And that's pretty much, that's the difference. I hope that's clear. Then to, to move through this, then they said, um, our flashbacks or completely dissociating necessary symptoms for PTSD diagnosis. No, some people have them. They are part of it. So dissociation and flashbacks are part of a DSM diagnosis of PTSD, but we don't have to have both of them in order to be diagnosed. Um, I have an entire video. You can go on YouTube, Katie Morton PTSD, where I walk through the entire diagnostic criteria. Some of them, you have to have like two of them, um, or you'll have to, you know, like flashbacks as part of it, or you might have to avoid other things that remind you of it. There, it, I walk you through all of that, but you do not have to have everything. It's It kind of just depends, obviously, because everyone experiences PTSD differently. Okay. Now, the last question, or is this, yeah, this is the last question on top of this. It says, also, can trauma worsen intrusive thoughts or even induce them? Since I've slowly started preparing myself for talking about my sexual abuse with my therapist, my violent intrusive thoughts have gotten worse and come up more often. They include about four different ways of killing myself and some are about harming myself. I'm also a former self-harmer. At least I think these are intrusive thoughts. And when they first started, my therapist insinuated something like that. They just pop up, sometimes randomly, but recently mostly when being preoccupied with my trauma. I don't want to act on them. They kind of bother me, and it's more vivid imagination than with normal thoughts. I don't have flashbacks, though, and the thoughts themselves are not directly connected to my abuse. It wasn't violent. What's the specific difference between intrusive thoughts and flashbacks? Is this more likely a sign of being overwhelmed by trauma or a separate issue? Will they become less when I finally start processing it? Okay, great question. So, yes, trauma can worsen intrusive thoughts. You have to think of... OCD, which is kind of a, where I would put intrusive thoughts. They usually live in that and they can be, you can be part of pure OCD where we just have the thoughts. Um, but it, and it's also good to be part of another anxiety disorder, but that's kind of where I put them out there and think the intrusive thoughts usually live somewhere in that sphere. We'll call it like the anxiety disorder umbrella. Now, of course, a trauma is going to worsen that 
because anxiety, if you don't know, just the bare bones definition of it is like it's uncontrollable worry. Now, if we have something terrifying and scary that happens to us that threatens our well-being or the well-being of someone we love and know, our anxiety is going to get worse. So our intrusive thoughts will go up. Essentially, our anxiety or our intrusive thoughts are kind of our only way of knowing how to kind of cope with what's going on. It's like our brain's like, oh my God, it's already in maybe the stress response, meaning fight, flight, freeze. And our amygdala is like firing and then something more stressful happens and it fires into overdrive and it will kick those things up more. So that makes sense. It like exacerbates the problem. And so because these thoughts, so flashbacks, so then let's get into the difference between intrusive thoughts and flashbacks. Now flashbacks are not, not complete replications, but they are we flash back, just as the term itself indicates, we flash back to another time when something traumatic or bad happened. So we're, you're talking about the sexual abuse that you sustained. A flashback would flash you back to something about that, be related to it in some way. Usually, but not always, flashbacks will make us feel like we're right back in it. And we can feel like we're, we're we could be standing in the room and not be in, let's say it was childlike me. I might not be the child having it happen to me again. I might, some people have that too. I might be watching from the corner in the room. That's another option that I've heard from people, like people told me about, or it can feel like we're watching like flashes of photos, like images, still images or little clips. And it's not, it doesn't really make sense cohesively in a story. Flashbacks can be any number of those things. We can also feel it in our body and have like a body memory flashback. That's what flashbacks are. Intrusive thoughts are usually sexual or violent in nature, not always, but they don't have anything to do with a trauma. Intrusive thoughts can just be like, I could just jump off that bridge right now. Or, oh, I, you know how easy it'd be to kill that person? We'll have thoughts like that. And we're like, what is going on? Like, am I, I'm not a bad person, but we make you think, you know, we can start to think we're a bad person. It can be, can really be difficult to, to deal with those for a long period of time. So that hopefully helps clarify a little bit about what the differences are because it sounds like if your thoughts intrusive thoughts aren't connected to the abuse I don't I I believe that they're intrusive thoughts but again you have to talk to your therapist more about it and they'll probably have more questions okay and then is this more likely a sign of being overwhelmed by my trauma yes 100% I would that was why what I would think it would be and will they become less when I finally start processing my trauma yes unfortunately when it comes to working through something like trauma and this even applies to like when we're trying to change behavior like when we're trying to stop using our eating disorder or self-injury or um, you know drug or alcohol addiction it gets worse before it gets better which is why a lot of us will start the work and then stop and then start and stop because it's it's uncomfortable it's like we're digging into something or opening pandora's box for lack of a better term letting all that stuff that we've hidden away forever you know maybe years and years we're we're showing it light and we're opening it up and digging it out and it's painful and it's hard and the dissociation the flashbacks the intrusive all the things any mental health issue we've had is like kind of can come out of it and we're like i haven't acted like that since i was a kid well, you're doing your best to try to cope while we essentially I like to think of uh, even therapeutic work in general, but specifically trauma work is like we take our bins of it out of storage, right? So we dig into the back of our brain, and we pull these bins out, these big rubber made bins, and we dump it all on the floor. And it just, for a while, it feels really overwhelming, right? It's like Sean and I getting ready to move. We had all this shit out in the house. And I was like, oh my God, if my, I just feel overwhelmed. But then we work with our therapist and our therapist starts, it pulls out these new bins 
and marks them up with certain things. Okay, this is going to go into, you know, uh, mom, work with mom. This is going to go into school bullying, right? We're going to start putting things, organizing them a little bit into uh, like when they happened or who was involved, relationship with this person, put this in the shame bucket. You know, we can start tea, like, that's why I just really like that analogy of like picking things up and like organizing them in, into bins. And then some of those bins, once we fully, you know, we've, we've even put all the other bins off to the side and dumped out the one that's labeled mom. We've dealt with mom. We've tried to talk to her. We have boundaries. We process it through. Honestly, we're sick of thinking about it. It's just so ugh, now it doesn't even matter. Put all those things. And then we file that bin away. We're done. We've processed it. We're moving past. Right. And so that's kind of the process. So yes, it will feel bad at first because we just dumped everything out and we're still trying to make sense of it and organize it. But with the help of a therapist and as we start to process it, it will get better. Okay. Oh, are you sick of hearing from me yet? <laughs> I hope that those answers were helpful. You always have such wonderful questions and I'm, I'm sure that you have no idea how much you're helping others just by asking them. So thank you all for being always so courageous and thoughtful with your questions because not only, you know, they challenge me to learn more and to ask other people things and do some research, but they also, you know, can give a voice to something maybe someone out there didn't know how to put words to, right? And I think that's really powerful. So thank you for being such a beautiful, wonderful community. And thank you for all your support on Monday's video. I, was, I always get nervous to put those out. I don't like, I don't, it's not about me, right? Vulnerability hangover, but you all are so lovely. I love you all so much. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. And I'll see you next time. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know.